Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. So I'm sure you've seen about that U2 concert in Las Vegas at the Sphere. Is it a is it a concert or is it a, a full uh, residency or something? A spherical residency. A spherical residency. What I read is that they had originally planned to do five shows, and then demand was such that they booked 25. So it's technically, it it's not like Adele living there for six months in Frank Sinatra's old suite in whatever hotel it is. Well, it kind of is. A month is a that I, that rates as a residency, in my opinion. A, a month, like it's twenty five shows. That's you know, that's a residency. Yeah, I guess it's not three months. It's not six months, like Adele, as you say. But it, it's more like, uh, well, <laughs> I just saw that Sticks, the the band Sticks, has also uh, taken a residency in Las Vegas. But I guess the Sphere. Is the place to be, and perhaps you could describe the sphere for people who haven't become acquainted with it. The sphere is shaped like a huge tennis ball, or soccer ball, or basketball, or like the planet Earth. Although the planet Earth is not entirely spherical. All right, all right. You know what? I knew you were going to do the, that. The idea, the idea, and this is actually kind of interesting. It was built by Madison Square Garden, which I find interesting. It cost two point two billion dollars. Think about that. $2.2 billion. Well, it's a, it's a tricky thing making a sphere. So well, I'm going to link to a video that I watched online from the CBS morning show or something like that. And they had a reporter who had an exclusive talking to Bono and Edge. Think of it as a big IMAX theater, but totally spherical. The video screen looks like it takes up about 40% of the entire sphere. The other 60% is seats. There's a flat section in front of the stage and then it goes up and it curves around. It has a capacity of, you ready for this, 17 to 20,000. So it's a big sphere. It's a big ass sphere, yeah. yeah. And so since it's curved, wherever you're sitting, you're facing the opposite side where videos are, right? And it's a very immersive experience. If you're all the way at the edge, you won't be entirely immersive because one eye will see the seats, but if you're anywhere in, I'd say 60... No sphere is perfect. <laughs> well, if you're anywhere in the sort of 60% around the middle, you'll be overwhelmed by the videos. Now, the videos are in front of you, but also up on the roof of the sphere. You know, to imagine the inside of a sphere. It's like a huge planetarium. It's like a huge IMAX, as you yeah. said. It's very... They can... They, the, the entire surface of the sphere, except for the seats... And the stage can be uh, illuminated with with images. With images, and I don't remember if there's a million or some millions of LEDs, some thousands of speakers. See, that's why it costs so much. Those bulbs, man, they you can't buy them in bulk. <laughs> and you see, it's not just inside because outside the entire thing is covered with LEDs as well. So if you look at some of the videos online, you'll see that it's constantly changing and animated in the middle of Las Vegas. So it's this new attraction. That is constantly, but it is sort of this gaudy displaying big itself in many thing. ways. It's like a Ferris wheel on steroids. It's like it's like it's like a huge it's landmark Las for Vegas. Las Vegas. Yeah, um, it's a terrific venue. Apparently, maybe great. 
sure, why not? Why not have this thing? I wonder if, how they're going to fill it. I mean, what are they? Do they go always going to have concerts in it? So that's the problem. So they have Darren Aronofsky who made a film that's showing there, and I think you pay forty nine bucks because you're paying for the experience. It's like you're going up in the Empire State Building, that kind of thing. I, I don't know that the film is itself extremely interesting, but you're paying because you want to see something on this big screen. So it's like a stereo hi-fi demonstration <laughs> record. You go and experience the sphere, and everybody goes to see the sphere, and everybody sees this movie. It's like going to uh, Epcot or something. You experience this thing. Exactly. It's an amusement. It's a, yeah. It's a but, ride. And sometimes, sometimes, it's a ride. And sometimes they can have concerts there. And sometimes they can have concerts. So they're calling this Darren Aronofsky's first multi-sensory film. Seats that let you feel every moment. So I guess the seats vibrate. The world's largest high-def screen. You can chat with interactive robots, get a 360-degree avatar capture. This must be when you're going in. Experience holographic images and more, blah, 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 blah. So basically, the concert thing is not the main use of this venue. Side hustle. Well, the big money because the tickets I think went from about 140 to 500 dollars. That's before they got into the legal scalping market. So if you've got if you've got 20,000 seats and and the stage for you two is very small, right? You've got a big flat area in front of their stage. You can see that can be used for a very large stage. So I'm assuming that this is 20,000. Let's say an average of 250 dollars a ticket. Do some. There are a lot of zeros in there if you do some multiplication. I don't even have to do the math. Yeah. Just the zeros alone in the original uh, yeah. equation. Were, now, were... one thing they pointed out, U2 was on board with this early on. Before the thing was even built, they were approached. Are they investors in it by any chance? I don't know. The CBS This Morning piece did point out that they've been at the forefront of technology with their Zoo TV tour with video screens. So they're really into that kind of thing. Also, they're a safe band. Yeah. They'll get old people with money who are the kind of people who mostly go to Las Vegas or you know, or the kind of people who spend money in Las Vegas. They said it took them a year and a half to create the visuals. For for their show? For their show. So it's, it's U2's team who created the visuals. It's not the Sphere team. They created the visuals for their show. And they had a bunch of artists. They have a, uh, they have a model Sphere back in Dublin where they can practice. How do they? Uh... I don't know. Maybe they just did it virtually on a computer screen. They didn't talk about that. Oh, they could right, do that. of course, yeah. But if you think about a year and a half's work for a team of people, I don't know what size, in order to do initially just five concerts or initially five concerts and coming back and doing more, that's an awful lot of work because this isn't just videos projected. It's all kinds of weird videos and things moving around. Now, you could imagine just plain videos, and at times you see a video that looks like the Nevada desert, right? So it looks like the sphere is open, and you're seeing the desert behind them. And that is kind of a, I don't want to say filler, but that's providing well, they'll also local color. Certainly, they'll also have filler of the band performing you know, if you've ever seen anything at a I'm con- not sure. I'm not sure that they do, actually. The videos that I've seen do not show the band. None hmm. of them. And I've looked up a number of them. It seems to me that that would be like the default visual. Yes, but maybe not in a sphere. Maybe you want something that accompanies the band. Now, I'm thinking 20,000 seats. If you're all the way in the back, I've seen some videos on social media. Everyone in that place holding up their phone to film it. It's like such a shame. They should say to people, we'll give you a five-minute clip of the concert, right? And the band's really tiny from the cheap seats. You can't really see much. And that made me think. 
So if you're doing something like this, do you remember that I mentioned the Macbeth that they did here at the Royal Shakespeare Theater in 2016, where they had a clock on stage? And at the moment the guy gets killed, the clock starts at two hours and ticks down to the very end. It has to end at exactly the right time. You two playing this has to be in sync with the images. There's no room for spontaneity. They're basically just playing the songs. Yeah, uh, they have... A- that's the way they run to a click track. It runs through a click track and everything is organized. And well, but that's not that you're right. There's no room for spontaneity, but most big shows, Taylor Swift, I'm sure there's no room for spontaneity. There's no room for spontaneity in these shows. Anything that has videos or dancers. Yeah. So why does the band even need to be there? Why couldn't they just play the music from a CD? Oh, be no, play the music from CD. Yeah. Apparently, they're playing all of Octung Baby with some other songs interspersed. So they're not just playing the album in order. I don't know how long it is. Sounds like an hour and a half show. It can't be, you know. Well, an hour and a half would be enough. It, it sounds incredibly immersive. Now, I saw something in our local Facebook group here this morning because there is talk of creating another sphere in Stratford. <laughs> But it's not Stratford-upon-Avon, it's Stratford-London. There's a Stratford in London. The problem is that the Sphere will have the right to display ads for 25 years. And they're dropping it in the middle of a residential area where there's people whose whose houses are right across the street. And the developers are saying, we'll just buy blackout curtains. I don't think that's going to be made in London. Or if if it's going to be made in the UK, it's got to be away from people. That's just... It sounds like the sort of thing that could easily be built in Dubai that or that sort of place. You sure. Know? Yeah. That's, that part of the world would love to see a sphere. And, you know, this tourism is big over there, too. Well, how are you going to make money on it? Because how many bands can spend the time and money to do the visuals for a show? Would you want to see a concert if all you're seeing in the back is videos of the band playing? That's kind of boring. Well, again, if if the sphere itself is the destination, then, you know, just to see the, the, the film or just to experience the craziness that they can do in it, with band or no band, it would still be an interesting amusement. Yeah, but at $2.2 billion per sphere, they've got to get a lot of people in there. And it's understandable in Las Vegas because everyone's tourists and they're looking for things to do. And 49 bucks, you'd lose that in blackjack in five minutes. So why not go to the sphere, right, to see a movie? Just to see the sphere. People are going to say, oh, I saw the sphere. But I don't see this being really viable in the long term for big concerts because – It does require that investment in the visuals. It requires a band or an artist who's interested in doing the visuals, right? But, you know, it's the sort of thing that, well, you hire a company or something. There there aren't going to be great visuals. But my thing about this is that this is an entirely visual thing. We haven't even talked about how it sounds. We haven't talked about how how do they make it sound in a sphere that's... Is they, it, they have is thousands of speakers. It, no, no, they have thousands of speakers. I'm, I'm assuming that it sounds really good. Well, yeah, but what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean? It sounds really good with thousands of speakers. How can it? Well, how can it? The, I still the, don't the, know how. The they guy can do on it. CBS pointed out that most major venues are built for sports, whether it's an indoor arena or an outdoor stadium. Whereas here, it's built for, I want to say, spectacles, music films, et cetera, et cetera. So they are able to adjust the sound much better than in a basketball hockey arena. Okay. I, all right. I guess I can- s- I trust them for I that. guess I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Because, okay, I, that makes sense. I still would be curious about the sound, though, how good it is. I mean, it might just be, 
I mean, it may not be loud, but it still may be disjointed and and it will it sound the way, well i guess it could i was going to say will it sound the way the record sounds will it sound the way the studio recording sounds or will it sound like a live show i'm sure it's going to sound like a live show but it it doesn't seem again i've only seen a few videos but it doesn't seem like the audience is cheering all the time right so there it's a different attitude than your normal concert because you're there for a different type of spectacle. So I, I, I kind of trust them that the audio is going to be, if not good enough, if not great, at least good enough. And it's going to be multi-channel. And they've got all sorts of options with all the speakers of, you know, panning. and Maybe they'll use my, my wireless headphone idea <laughs> where everybody gets a free set of wireless headphones and you can listen yeah. that way. It could be done it, there. It, I mean, well, actually, twenty thousand people, twenty thousand pairs of headphones. Got to make sure they all work. Keep them charged. Clean them. Wouldn't want to be bothered with that. Still, it's a great idea. <laughs> great idea. You should patent it. You should make a company. I got a lot of great Doug's ideas. Doug's cans. Here's another thing, though. In general, this has got me thinking. When people go to go to a, a show, how do you say you're going to a show? How do you say it? Let's say that Jethro Tull is playing down at, at down at the theater. What do you say? I'm going to see Jethro Tull down at the theater. You're going to go see yeah. Jethro right. Tull. You it's never say I'm going to listen to or I'm going to hear. Ver- barely anybody ever says, well, I'm going to go listen to Jethro Tull perform tonight at the thing. And then what? After you've seen them, what do you tell people? I saw them, but not that I heard them and the show was great and it sounded wonderful. It's just, yep. I saw Tull back in 87. It's like it just says to me that the sound isn't important in a concert. People are like, no, I want to go see them. I want to. Yeah. Well, I, wanna, I mean, I, that's I, the we've word. talked about this many times. I, I want to disagree because if the sound is bad, people will say so. The, the real fans will, will say they? so. Yeah. Will I they, do they want to say they had a bad experience? Yes. It, if the sound. Yeah, all right. I will grant you that. If the sound is extraordinarily bad. They will. If the sound's mediocre or worse, I think people, it, again, I haven't seen a live rock concert other than Dylan a couple of times here. I've seen a live rock concert in decades, but seeing the performers live and experiencing the energy between performers and audience is the most important thing. The sound is the second most important thing because you want to hear the music, but the crowd is going to be cheering and you've got the the atmosphere, but that atmosphere adds to the energy of the experience. So you want to be able to appreciate, see, it's hard for me because I've seen so many classical concerts where you don't even question that the sound is good and people don't cheer or smoke or do the mosh pit thing. You could though. It'd be nice if you wanted to do that with some, some I don't know. Gigs or gigs. Yeah, or no. some tarantellas, or you know. Actually, it would be cool if they, people could actually dance those kind of dances during concerts. Even like the Strauss concert, if people could get up and you know do some ballroom dancing. Anyway, I, I know what you're saying. You're saying the sound is terrible, but I don't think it's terrible. I think it's good. I think it's okay. I think when you're at a live rock concert, you you kind of make an abstraction of that because you're feeling it. It's so loud and the bass is so loud. You're feeling it in your bones and you're in, if you're into the band, you know the songs and you're maybe singing along, humming along. So I've been there. I, for, you know, I've been to many concerts and many club shows and was thrilled to be there for that reason. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought this just doesn't, it isn't worth it to come and hear this. Um, it isn't worth it to see. The other thing is I became jaded because 
It isn't you know, worth it to just go to hear that. Yes, that's right. And and just going to see a band, that was no longer very rewarding either. It's like big deals. So what? I'm going to go see them. I don't there's no there's no accounting for that in my well, mind. Well, there was always the feeling of exclusivity. The band only comes to your town once a year. Maybe if you're in a big city like New York, they'd play three shows or something. Uh, this is before the residency concept of, you know, I, I remember the Dead playing two or three shows the first time they did Madison Square Garden in 1979. But then 20 years on, bands were doing a week, two weeks, you know. Yeah, I mean, they, Allman they, Brothers traditionally played for a couple of weeks in New York. and um, you At know, the Beacon, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Beacon, that sort of thing. I mean, some bands. But those did are do smaller it. venues. That's so a little bit different. But still, yeah. it, it was if you're if you weren't in New York, it was exclusivity. Your one chance to see this band this year, if not for multiple years, because they don't tour a lot, and that was always part of it. Part of the sociological aspect of belonging to a group of people who like the band, et cetera, et cetera. This would be an interesting discussion to discuss the semiotics of live concerts. We're not going to do it today, though. Well, no, I, I haven't been in a long time. I don't even remember what it's like to be there other than... Oh, you do. You do. Well, I mean, to some degree, yes, but I would really like to go back. <laughs> no, we're not going to discuss it today. I would like to be able to pull those memories up and play them back, but I can't, of course. Ah, okay. So this fits with what I've been reading recently, a book by Gilles Deleuze called Proust and Signs, where he talks about the semiotics of Proust and how he his involuntary memory the lost time in the title in search of lost time is transformed to the present by him reliving those experiences from the past. But this for a topic for a different podcast, I think. Okay, good. Because I'm not ready to, to go that deep yet. <laughs> I just woke up a little while ago. Well, I'm sorry. We should do this later in the day then. <laughs> so I was trying to think who else could perform in a venue like that. It's not, Oh, it's not going to be Taylor Swift, right? Well, probably not. No, it's too much. Uh, she doesn't need all the visual. She wants the attention. She she would be the one to watch. You don't want to see a bunch of video. And- yeah, so that's interesting because you two is actually being putting themselves, they're distancing themselves. They're not the ones mm-hmm. to watch. Uh, again, there may be some videos of them on the screen, but I didn't see any. It, it, makes, it makes it seem like the video is meant to be a backdrop and not to focus on the musicians, which is an interesting idea. They want to be part of the, they, they want to be the, the ones creating the experience. Right. It's not about them. They don't need to be, do you think Bono wants to be in this 200 foot high image on the thing showing no. all his wrinkles and his age and everything? <laughs> That's like, no, seriously. No, I don't think he does. I don't think they're that kind of band. I think that they're more like, you're here to hear the experience and this enhances the experience of our performance. It's not about us. You know, but imagine any type of band who performs like that with videos of the band. Like it's like what were the people in Jonathan Swift, the Lilliputians? Was that the, <laughs> the Lilliputians? Yeah, Lilliputians. The little yeah. ones, and there's a big giant, yeah. and and it would be like that, and that would just be that would feel somewhat 1984ish. Yeah, I think that's probably what people are, are expecting. In fact, that's the first thing I said. Are you going to have videos up of, of the band? But it's not an audiovisual aid. It's an audiovisual enhancement. So you're right. Which Who could do it? Um, I'm, I'm thinking a band like Yes would love to get in there. You know, they're, still, they're touring one more time, some configuration of them. 
Are they still touring? They, I thought I saw an announcement. Well, aren't there two different versions of I, there Yes? There are like 18 different versions. There are 18 road companies. No, I mean I mean <laughs> that they split into two different pairs yeah, of know. musicians. I don't, I don't pay attention to that anymore. Something like that. that. Um, if Pink Floyd were still around, they would want to do it. They're, they would be that sort of band. That's a good point. And maybe Roger Waters is going to do that with his new recording of Dark Side of the Moon. But somebody like Springsteen couldn't do it. It's no. too, he's too personal. He wants to relate to the audience. I mean, just look at what he did recently, where it was just him and, you know, him in the audience. But yeah, who, the, the thing on Broadway telling the stories. Yeah. So, I mean, it would have to be a, 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 an artist who really felt that their music was more important than they are. Yes. Or at least, or at least felt enough that they had, they could create an experience where they were not the star. It was the music that was the star. I'm, I would expect Brian Eno to do this. Well, that's what I, uh, he's another one. But again, can he fill 20,000? Well, no, but see, Brian Eno would do it as an installation. The same way this oh, Darren, I see, right. Darren, Darren Aronofsky, Aronofsky film. Did. Yeah. Right, right, of course. So he, of would, course. he would create some music, he would create some visuals, and that would be a thing that they could do for, you know, tickets from $49. How much did they say it cost to create a program for it? It was like billions of dollars in a year and a half? No, 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 of- it was $2.2 billion to build the sphere. I don't know about what the artists have to do, but you two spend a year and a half, their creative team spend a year and a half building the visuals. And I, I want to assume that a lot of that is just trying to grasp the concept of this huge circular screen and what you do in it. The other thing too, is that Eno would do something generative. Yes. So it wouldn't be a construction of a two and a half hour program. It would be just turn it on and let it go. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's what would happen. Yeah. So that would be, that might be interesting. Yeah. I would, I would pay to see that if I was in Las Vegas, but of course I'm a Brian Eno fan. Yeah. But. Now the other thing I was thinking, the other thing I was thinking, we talked about video game music recently. Imagine a video game, maybe an orchestra playing video game music, and you've got images from the video game on the screen. Kind of hard to fill an hour and a half with video game images and not be boring, because most of these games have, you know, violent combat. So do you include that or not? Also, there's no, is there any reason to have a live orchestra? Um, it gives more value to the event, right? But it would be cheaper and more profitable if they had a program, whatever they're calling it, that, you know, and today at 2 p.m. you get to see the video game concert or something. Or or let's say they've got a 90-minute program with 10 minutes from each of eight or nine video games. So you can have the images of each game during the main themes. You rearrange the, the music. That would be – see, that's what I'm thinking because this is a tourist attraction. This is not a concert venue. They're going to have to fill it with things that will get people in. And they're also going to have to fill it with things where they can press a button. Like you said, for, you know, just press a button to start it. So they could have, let's say, Monday they do this, Tuesday they do that, Wednesday they do that. Or they do three or four shows a day for this film. Maybe they have two different programs each day. I would like to see a, a Pink Floyd show on Thursday nights, <laughs> like they used to have at the Planetarium. They could do that. Yeah. Remember that Lazarium? The Lazarium, that's it. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier. <laughs> at the Planetarium in New York City, you'd get in these seats where you kind of lean back, you had the headrest, and they'd play. And it wasn't just Pink Floyd. It was all sorts of space rock. And they'd have these lasers dancing around. And you'd get high and you'd go in there. It was like an hour long. It was really cool. And I remember in 1977, Tangerine Dream did a show at Avery Fisher Hall in Lincoln Center. It's a classical room. And with a screen behind them with a live Lazarium light show. 
If you look at their live album, I believe it's called USA or USA Live, whatever, that image is, is them doing that concert setup, and one of the four sides was recorded in that concert. So, see, there's nothing new under the sun. It's a, it's, The Sphere no, it's is just, really just a big planetarium, big IMAX show, really, right? It is. It's, a, it's closer to IMAX, but the idea of using – because IMAX – I don't think it's ever been used for anything other than movies, right? So here you're taking you're taking it to another step with the concert, which is a what what I think is cool is it's really interesting, but it's so large and expensive that it's prohibitive and that you're not going to see them pop up everywhere. Like maybe you could get small ones that have 3000 seats with smaller screens hmm. and you could have different types of programs. Yeah, but again, they could only be in sp- in certain places, like I could see Disney doing one, or you know, some uh, some place that already has a number big of, of built-in um, has built-in audience already. Right, big cities or places people travel to, like London, New York, Paris, things. But you couldn't build them in the city because you'd need a lot of space, even if it's just a few thousand seats. They're awful bright. What about the light pollution factor? Well, but that's the problem that they're talking about in London, that they don't want it. And in it makes sense in Las Vegas. Who cares about the lights? Everything's lit up. But in London, doing that? They, they could have a little tiny one on, on Broadway, I suppose. Yeah. Little, 30 seats. No, <laughs> little no, no, sphere, no. 12 feet, 12 feet in no, diameter. No, you think of, you think of, <laughs> you mentioned the Beacon Theater. That's probably about 2,000 seats. Palladium was 2,000. That sort of theater isn't that big. Of course, spherical, it means it's a totally different layout. It's going to take up more space than vertical and, you know, rectangular. I wonder if they could make small. You know, I might not be surprised if you do start to see in the next 10 years little small well, spheres. Madison Square, I had no idea that Madison Square Garden had Madison become, Sphere Garden, you mean? I, I had no idea that they'd become such a big company that they could afford to do this. And maybe they got you know, outside investors to put up the $2.2 billion. Well, yeah. you see, that's why I mentioned Dubai. It's like, maybe yeah. they'll build one there next. But I, I also had no idea that they did anything outside of New York. So this suggests that maybe they're turning into, and I should have looked this up before, because I was thinking when I was about 10 years old, my parents bought me a share of stock in Madison Square Garden. They thought it would be cool to own a share of stock back when you got a piece of paper and everything. And I probably sold it about six or eight years later when there was a someone wanted to buy it out. They sent you know the letter of like we'll pay this much for it and so whatever. There was no point keeping it, but that's because Madison Square Garden was where we went to see the New York Rangers play ice hockey, and then where I went to see concerts. It was for New York. It was a really important place for sports and culture. The fact that they've spread outside of New York is interesting. Well, I wonder if they've also gone the uh, sports betting route and that sort of thing because I know they're heavily involved in. In sporting stuff as well, so I mean that's something. I guess, I guess, I guess you're looking it up right now. I'm looking it up right now. Madison Square Garden Entertainment. They own the Beacon Theater, the Chicago Theater, the MSG Sphere at the Venetian. That's that's Las Vegas. MSG Sphere London, which may or may not be made. Radio City Music Hall, MSG Network, MSG Sportsnet, MSG Western New York, whatever that is. So they've gone from being a local regional company to being a multinational huge company. It's 70% is owned by the Dolan family. Charles Francis Dolan, best known as founder of Cablevision and HBO. Well. So if approved, the MSG Sphere London would be identical to the MSG Sphere in Las Vegas, if approved. 
19,000 by 13,500 pixel resolution LED screen, 54,000 square meters of programmable lighting on the outside. Ah, a 3,000 person club venue is under consideration as well. There you go. So they're thinking about it. I mean, why not go to the disco right. and have it be at the Sphere? Wow, in London? Well, no, 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 no. Club in the sense of small concert hall is, I think. You mean a mean. small concert hall in the Sphere? No, a separate. Like I said oh, earlier, a imagine a three thousand seat Sphere. I see. For smaller concerts, and in that case, you wouldn't mind seeing the band projected. Because it's smaller, and that would make a lot more sense. It's also conventional now. I mean, every concert has uh, has video screens. Every single one. There's just it's a courtesy, really. Because if you can't see the stage, you want to see what's going on. And which leads me back to my: When are we going to see concerts streamed? But we're almost out of time, so we are out of time. I think it's time we go for our next tracks. I've been listening to something recently that I want to say this is one of my favorite groups of pieces of music. Henry Purcell wrote a series of Fantasias for the Viols. So for a viola de gamba ensemble, these Fantasias are, well, fantasies were just basically, they weren't structured in the same way as later in the Baroque period. You had, you know, the Tarantella, the, the Gavotte, and all that sort of things. And it's this lovely lush music that is I don't know how to describe it. I I played the viola de gamba for a while, way back in the day. I'm getting old now. And I've always liked that wonderful sound of the gut strings. So there, there are 15 fantasias for the vials, and they go from the first one is a fantasia upon one note, where it's a very interesting way it's produced. Some of them are three parts, four parts, six parts, and the final one is in seven parts. And I've listened to this about half a dozen times recently. The recording I'm listening to is by Jordi Saval and Hesperion XX. I'm assuming it's Hesperion 20, but what, what's 20 in Spanish? Because they're a Spanish group. So anyway, Hesperion XX. It was recorded years ago. This release says 2008, but it's at least 20 years older than that. It's a beautifully recorded womb-like sound of vials going around your head as you listen to it. It, it has, it breathes, it, it sways, it rocks, and it's just wonderful music. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Purcell's Fantasias for the Vials. What about you, Doug? Well, as you know, I've been on a journey over the past few years looking for music that I haven't heard before so that I don't have to suffer through listening to the same crap I always listen to over and over again. And uh, this week I found a, a, a great collection of music by a British band called The Flatmates. They were around from 85 to 89 only. The Flatmates just recorded singles. They never got to album status. Uh, but they were an indie British pop band. And they put out, they recorded their own stuff, they wrote their own stuff, and they put out their own stuff. And they made a couple of John Peel appearances, I believe. But they've got that nice poppy, jangly sound that I kind of like. Now, as I said, they put out a few singles, made the charts, but they never got the album deal. It looks like they had trouble holding on to uh, personnel. Uh, it looks like, you know, band members would join and then a couple of months later they would go start another band. So it's that's just the sort of scene that was going on there, I suppose. It reminds me a lot of the scene in California in like the 60s with like surf rock groups and things like that. One band or psychedelic bands or anything like that. Where, you know, they would all be in different bands and never get an album deal and just continuously put out singles. That's what these people did. But anyway, the reason I found out about them is I saw their album on Apple Music. It's called 
The Flatmates Potpourri hits, mixes, and demos 85 to 89. And it's a collection of, obviously, their hits, their mixes, and their demos. And uh, I've heard one or two songs on it. I kind of like it. I'm going to listen to the rest of it soon. The Flatmates Potpourri is my next track. This was episode number 266 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining. Listener support keeps the thing going. So please visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack and give us some of your support. We appreciate it. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.